A crowd of 25,000 rabid soccer fans at New York's polo grounds see Kilmarnock of Scotland kicking off in the game against undefeated Bangola, Brazil for the American Cup playoff in the International Soccer League. striped shirts rose early why Brazil won the world soccer title two years ago. After three minutes of clever footwork in Kilmarnock territory, Santos scores for Bangu. Bangu is favored but the team from Scotland is no pushover with a long passing attack that might bring them a sudden goal to tie it up. But the Brazilian goalie is on his toes. In the second half, the squad from South America keeps the pressure on Kilmanock. With three minutes left, a 25-yard boot by Santos has the Scottish goalie playing heads down ball. Watch this. A good try, but not good enough. Bango wins two to nothing, and the boys from Brazil have a big cup going away gift. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, everybody. How's it going? Can you feel the excitement crackling in the air? It's your pal, Tim Hanlon, and it is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast. And of course, as always, each and every week, mostly every week, is devoted to uh, the exploration of what used to be in the realm of professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. We appreciate it as always we are bouncing back to soccer this week and uh, an interesting take from our guest this week mark pool um you know i try to search up uh, lots of books and things that are coming on the horizon and stuff and uh, and uh, mr pool has a, a new book out it's been out for about a month or so that uh through our various nooks and uh, crannies of uh, web crawling and research and all that kind of stuff uh, is called 99 iconic moments in scottish football yeah, Scottish football. I have soccer, of course, here in the United States. From the famous to the obscure, that gets my attention. Scotland's glorious, unusual, and cult games, players, and events. Now, if you are a huge soccer fan uh, or uh, have grown up uh, or a fan of or fancy uh, the Scottish brand of football, you're in the Celtic, Rangers, or whatever, you know, other the Scottish Premier League teams are these days, and, and you know, the discussions that go on about possibly, you know, have them at least – uh, joining maybe a European Super League and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this obviously is a, a must-have book, and it's great. It's, it's all kinds of uh, uh, idiosyncratic, shall we say, uh, stories about uh, various teams, uh, both the uh, national versions and uh, club versions uh, in Scottish football. But uh, our ears uh, and eyes get uh, uh, alert uh, when we uh, stumble across things that uh, hit the United States or North American radar. And in the sport of soccer, uh, really interesting uh, confluences uh, in two events, one of which you heard the clip for uh, from 1960, that clip was, and something called the International 
Soccer League, which uh, in previous episodes you may have heard us talk about. The International Soccer League was essentially a U.S.-based uh, soccer uh, situation in the summers, ran for about five or six years, uh, seasons in the United States, largely in the New York metropolitan area, but uh, up and down the East Coast as, uh, as the years rolled on. Uh, the Polo Grounds, a very uh, a famous place for this stuff. Uh, Ebbets Field, a number of games uh, and and such. And what was it? It was a, a concoction by this guy named Bill Cox, uh, a wealthy, uh, you know, U.S. sports oriented businessman and uh, controversial owner of the Philadelphia Phillies and, and him not being able to. It, we get into that in, in, in previous episodes, so you can look that up. But uh, let's put it this way. Mr. Cox was inveterate as a uh, as an entrepreneur, despite baseball banning him from from being an owner in baseball. Let's just leave it at that. But. Uh, recognizing that soccer could be a thing in the United States in the early 1960s, imported uh, full clubs to play a round robin sort of centric tournament uh, with stakes, a cup and all that kind of stuff. And for five, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six seasons from 1960 through 65, you had uh, 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 teams from all over uh, the globe, uh, from Greece and Brazil and Bayern Munich and Germany and Prague and 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 of course uh, Scotland was uh, represented and we get into the story of the 1960 uh, international uh, version of the soccer uh, international soccer league the very first season um, with our conversation with Mark Poole that's our our entree uh, because uh, there uh, was a uh, well so a number of Scottish teams played in this in this ISL but um, the one that's probably most uh, remembered. Uh, and recognized was uh, Kilmarnock, which uh, played uh, four of those seasons and in 1960 uh, won its division. Uh, and uh, we'll get into the sort of the mechanics of that. It's kind of crazy. There were sort of two groups uh, and the first group played in the beginning part of the summer of 1960, then halted. And most of the teams went back to their respective countries. Uh, and uh, the uh, second uh, stage or group played. And then there was a final between those two. So the uh, Kilmarnock team had to actually come back from Scotland uh, and play the championship final, despite having been away for a month and uh, and resting, shall we say. Uh, interesting, intricate stories about that. But uh, that's one of the stories that Mark uh, has in his book. And we wanted to kind of double click on the uh, Kilmarnock uh, team uh, playing in that championship final in the 1960 International Soccer League. Let's put it this way. They didn't win, but the stories are interesting nonetheless. The other sort of iconic uh, uh, event uh, that overlaps our interest uh, is certainly something we've also talked about previously, but we want to uh, go a little bit deeper on, and that's the United Soccer Association, which came in 1967. As you'll hear in our conversation with Mark coming up in a few minutes, there was clearly a divining line uh, in 1966 in American soccer, because that's when the World Cup was played, um, obviously in England, England winning its uh, championship, of course. But prior to that time, it was the, this was the first time, 1966, where an actual World Cup match was broadcast live here in the United States. It might have been delayed a little bit, but I think NBC carried it in 1966. And despite the efforts, or maybe because of some of those efforts of the ISL in those years prior, uh, stirring up some interest, certainly ethnically, and maybe to the quote-unquote uh, casual American soccer or American sports fan, uh, the uh, there was absolutely a newfound interest in maybe looking at creating a full-time professional 
soccer league in the United States coming off the back or uh, the wind uh, from the sails of uh, the 1966 uh, national broadcast here in the United States, which was very well viewed. Um, as we've talked about in numerous other episodes, right, there are th- not not just one, but three groups of, of, of business folk who wanted to create a league immediately on the back of the 1966 thing, starting in 1967. Actually, it was 1968, and there was a lot of hurriedness, and those three became two, and, and we've gotten to that conversation previously. But uh, the United Soccer Association was one of those two, and as we'll talk about with Mark in a few minutes – um, hastened in its uh, launch because I think it was set for 1968, but this National Professional Soccer League 1967 launched uh, with a CBS television contract and not uh, blessed by FIFA, uh, although the United Soccer Association was. Uh, let's put it this way. There was a, a bit of a scramble, shall we say, to kind of be the first ones. And because of that, the United Soccer Association, because the NPSL was threatening to kind of sh- you know start in 67 basically said, crap, we got to get our act together. Let's import teams, whole cloth, and we'll relabel them and domicile them in these various cities in the United States. And that'll be our sort of entree. And uh, we'll sort of buy us some time for a full-fledged launch in 1968. And that's exactly where we talk with Mark about uh, a team that went to the final of that season called the Washington Whips, owned by a guy named Earl Foreman, who uh, many of our uh, previous listeners will know, uh, was the uh, founder and uh, or co-founder and chief instigator of the major indoor soccer league, but also a um, uh, a, a big wig in lots of startup sports and in in, in certainly the ABA. He was very much involved in, et cetera. Aberdeen in Scotland was the team that came and represented Washington, D.C., as this thing called the Washington Whips, joined, by the way, by two other uh, Scottish clubs, Dundee United, masquerading as the Dallas Tornado. Interesting stories there, Lamar Hunt and friends playing in the Cotton Bowl. And uh, another Scottish team, Hibernian, uh, well-known and still around, uh, masquerading as Toronto City uh, back in the day. But Aberdeen was clearly the best of those three Scottish uh, teams. And as we'll talk about, uh, went all the way to the final in 1967, uh, against uh, another uh, uh, masquerading team, if you will, the Los Angeles Wolves, who of course were Wolverhampton Wanderers, and an epic an epic game uh, that occurred uh, then in 1967 in the late summer, uh, and uh, a story of lore, some of which we've talked about in previous episodes. But we're going to click on that again with our conversation with Mark Poole as we talk about uh, the exploits in 1967. Of this uh, Aberdeen club masquerading again as the Washington Whips, and of course, uh, perhaps the, uh, the 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 Scottish team that kind of started the uh, the dynamic here in the United States, Kilmarnock, in their International Soccer League of 1960. Obscure, yes. Important, yeah. Believe it or not, and uh, part of the fabric of pro soccer's uh, beginnings, uh, if you will, or new beginnings here in the United States. We're going to dispense with the. Uh, uh, with, with all that preamble, we're going to dispense with uh, any promotional stuff. But go to our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find convenient cl- uh, links to uh, to this book uh, of Mark's, and we'll have some other uh, cool stuff to link to as well. But let's get to that conversation, shall we? Let's talk about two of these 99 iconic moments in Scottish football. Let's talk about the Scottish football uh, experience, shall we say, in the 1960s with the International Soccer League and the United Soccer Association. Here's our conversation with Mark we had 
geez, what it was, about two weeks ago? Yeah, here it is. Thanks for listening, and uh, please, as always, enjoy. I'm uh, I'm really intrigued uh, to to chat with you. We, you know, we kind of scour uh, the earth, shall we say, for all kinds of entrees into this little weird niche that we've kind of created for ourselves, which is you know teams and leagues and you know, situations and tournaments and, and events and all that kind of stuff in in the realm of pro sports, largely North American centric because that's where we live. Uh, obviously, and a lot of you know professional sports seems to have. Um, Flourished in North America, uh, uh, you know, over the years, all kinds of wacky and strange uh, and sometimes and oftentimes forgotten kinds of things. But, you know, uh, I love the stuff from uh, pitch publishing and and we look at uh, all kinds of sort of international approaches to things. And sure enough, well, uh, delving into uh, your current book, which we'll describe in a moment, um, of course, uh, laser focused on a couple of different sort of uh situations in the united states where um scottish football uh had a role or two and uh, i'm just i'm fascinated at these little um diversions i guess and and i suspect you are too but before we go further um why don't you kind of describe for our audience who you are and what your entree is into the uh shall we say the the long and torturous history of of scottish football and then we'll get into some of the specifics um yeah absolutely um yeah mark i grew up was born in Glasgow in 1975, um, grew up in Edinburgh, um, and it's pretty inevitable that um, um, we'll, when you grow up in Scotland, you um, become almost everyone loves, develops a deep love of football um, or soccer, um, and I was no exception, and I am currently channeling that passion into writing and particularly stories that interest me and that's what led me to write the book 99 iconic moments in scottish football is basically um 99 separate articles about um incidents matches and events that i think are really interesting well so okay so why don't you sort of lay out uh on the table i guess um especially for our audience that uh, didn't have the luxury uh, or the benefit of, of growing up uh, in Scotland. Maybe can you describe for the outsider uh, what it is to be a Scottish football fan uh, and maybe yeah. a little little bit of insight, not only on the international front, but also the domestic, um, uh, you know, uh, professional game vis-a-vis Europe and all the things that have happened over the last number of decades. Because uh, frankly, from an outsider's perspective, and I know enough to be dangerous, right? Um, right? It feels to me that it's not easy being a Scottish football fan on either level. Right. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. um, so Scotland, um, obviously, is a relatively small small country, um, and we've got a big noisy neighbour to the south. So um, 5 million people live in Scotland. 55 million people, roughly, I think, live in England. Um, and then there's lots of other big successful footballing countries in Europe as well, Spain, France, Germany, Italy. And um, But Scotland's passion for football is up there with all those countries. Um, uh, we were at the forefront of developing the game alongside England, basically with the two countries that were most responsible for developing football in the late 19th century, going into the early 20th century. And and sort of spreading 
that around the world. Um, arguably, Scotland invented passing football. Um, you know, players passing to each other rather than just charging at each other with the ball, which is what it previously been like in England in the sort of 1870s. Um, so we feel like Scotland has a key role in football development across the world. We're one of the most passionate nations in the world, I would say, about our football. Um, we, but yeah, we're a smaller country than other successful football countries, and we've tried to punch above our weight for decades, um, and with a fair amount of success, um, but not always, <laughs> not always successfully. Um, we've featured in a lot of World Cups, but not got very far. Um, at those World Cups, and um, we've had some of the best players in the world. Um, we've had players that have been awarded the trophy for being the best player in the world, like Dennis Law, for example. Um, and Celtic have won the European Cup, one of the two huge clubs in Scotland. Celtic and Rangers are two of the biggest football clubs in the world um, and far bigger than anyone else in Scotland. Um, and so Celtic were the, I think, the fifth ever club to win the European Cup after Real Madrid, Milan, Inter and Benfica. Um, which was quite an achievement. So before any English teams, uh, which is something um, that's quite important to, <laughs> to us in Scotland. Um, and yeah, generally, generally, gen generally, we do punch above our weight at football. But um, but yeah, it's it can be a struggle sometimes because we are quite a bit smaller. And now with money being more important in football and being more present in the bigger leagues. Our clubs in particular are struggling a bit to keep up with the bigger leagues. But currently, our, our national team are doing really well. We've just um, qualified for the next European Championships and we won five games in our, the first five games of our qualifying group, including beating Spain 2 0. So, um, yeah, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves on the international stage at the moment. But that will probably be temporary. <laughs> oh, now, okay. So there you go. They're always that sort of Scottish like doubt sort of there at the end. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's unpack that a little bit, especially on the um, on the pro circuit there, right? So um, I think most uh, passing knowledgeable uh, fans are at least aware of those two iconic teams that you mentioned, Celtic and Rangers. And, and, and maybe you, for our audience, maybe you can sort of backtrack a little bit to kind of, I know it's kind of a, 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 a challenge in just a few minutes, but kind of a little bit of a, a history sort of between those two teams, because they, they are outsized, if you will, in terms of, of all of that. And then there's the rest of the league, but, but maybe you can also put that, the, those two teams in context to what is now uh, the, um, the Scottish premiership, because uh, I think part and parcel of all of this is Scotland's role, both politically and culturally and on the sporting landscape uh, when it comes to uh, football slash soccer generally. And, you know, it's got to be an interesting diversion and maybe not necessarily tremendously helpful to the Scottish psyche, regardless of which team, of the outsized and just unbelievable influence of the English Premier League over the last number of decades. So I guess the question from an outsider's perspective is, you know, this great culture, two of these iconic teams, um, yet uh, not able to sort of somehow participate in the uh, vast riches, I guess, of the EPL. Um, can you kind of a, sort of explain all of that scenario as to maybe why 
maybe the Scottish clubs were not part of that process, et cetera. And maybe that has some implications for England, excuse me, for uh, Ireland and Wales and, and Northern Ireland too. Yeah, so I guess um, there has been sort of very early stages of speculation and talk about potentially Celtic and Rangers moving out of the Scottish League and into the English League at some point. That's the sort of topic that comes up every so often because, yeah, like you say, it would enable them to financially realise their potential um, to a fuller extent than they currently manage. And then with a knock on, with then the effect of that would be obviously with more finances, they'd be able to compete more um, in on a bigger stage. Um, it's something that's never really happened for a number of reasons. Um, one thing that isn't discussed as much is um, is the Scottish and English leagues merging completely, um, which would also give Celtic and Rangers that opportunity, but it would also give the next tier of clubs in Scotland, um, for example, Hearts and Hibs from Edinburgh and Aberdeen, um, who've had a fair amount of success throughout their history, um, in spite of uh, the dominance of Celtic and Rangers. Um, it would give them an opportunity to find their level in a bigger um, pool as well. Um, but Scotland is fiercely independent from a football point of view. It's one of the, without wishing to <laughs> go down a political road about Scotland and independence. Um, it's it's an area where Scotland really, where Scotland is a country, an independent country on the world stage in terms of football. Um, and we're very protective of that um, because it's uh, quite a positive thing um, in terms of identity um, and nationhood. So, um, so I think there's a bit of a fear that if we tinker with that too much, that we'll lose some of that. Um, and potentially that FIFA might turn around and say, well, if Scotland isn't really an independent country anymore in terms of football, in terms of the leagues, why do you have a national team who get invited to try and qualify for the World Cup? And we really don't want to lose that. Um, whether FIFA would say that or not, I don't know. But um, it's a risk we don't, it's a sort of genie we don't want to get out of the bottle that. Um so, yes, um, there is every so often speculation about Celtic and Rangers trying to move to England. Also, there's probably clubs in the Premiership in England who would not welcome Celtic and Rangers because of the additional competition, um, because clubs towards the bottom end of the English Premiership don't want more competition to be there because the, the riches that are available to them from being in that league are, are something they would like to hold, up, hold on to. Well, look, I, I think you're at the nub of it, right? I mean, the, the the cultural and the economic and the political, frankly, all of these things intersect, right? When you when you yeah. talk about this particular issue, right? So, you know, note that we're not there. Are, there have absolutely been a number of Welsh teams, though, that have nibbled their way into the yes. Premier League over time, right? That so that's a far different sort of kind of dynamic, right? Yeah, it's it's it does act as a precedent, but it is a different dynamic. Yeah. Um, that's more because there wasn't a strong and independent Welsh league as there is in Scotland for big clubs like Cardiff and Swansea to play in. So that a long time, they've been in the English league for a long, long time because they, they didn't really have a Welsh league that was big enough for those clubs. Look, it also gets you into uh, sort of the the rumblings, the ever 
present rumblings of uh, a European Super League and, you know, a boundaryless kind of thing. And, and you know, the big rich com- uh, c- countries, sorry, excuse me, countries, com- I was going to say companies. And then I corrected myself and I'm still wrong. Yeah. The rich clubs, right, with yeah. their, you know, uh, trying to create their own sort of walled garden, if you will, of uh, much more closed and controlled uh, competition, right? Which, you know, in, in many respects, just kind of um, attacks the soul of the sport with the promotion and the relegation thing. Um, yeah. it, it just, you know, and I guess underlying all of it is just, is money, right? It's always more yeah. games, more money and more, you know, private equity pumping up the values of these franchises. And, you know, I can imagine that at least those two super clubs, if you will, in Scotland, uh, and maybe the league itself, right. Kind of looks at, that sort of from a very dual point of view that, you know, there's certainly some riches and some benefit to come, but then there's also probably probably give up a little bit of, or a lot of our soul if we were to do these kinds of things. That's absolutely the balance. Yeah. Um, and I th- I th- that's the reason why I think Celtic and Rangers haven't pursued m- more forcefully trying to get into the English premiership for starters. Anyway, it's interesting what you say about the, uh, of course, Always comes with a caveat of would they would they be welcomed by the English Premiership um, or not? Um, but yeah, uh, it's interesting about the short-lived <laughs> Super League idea that was floated a couple of years ago, and the fans were absolutely appalled by across even. Oh, the but but it, you know it's going to come back, right? The the idea yeah. will not go away, and it's just yeah. a matter of making it. I don't know, trying to figure out ways to make it palatable so that they can go down smoothly. I guess I. I'm with you, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, I did wonder at the time um, how Celtic and Rangers would feel about it if they were invited, because I think it wasn't, it didn't get far enough to find out who the, exactly what would happen if it did happen. <laughs> but, um, yes, I think there would potentially, it could be a scenario where Celtic and Rangers did get invited to that um, Super League. Um, certainly if it was, um, large enough, uh, because yeah, I mean, Celtic have sixty thousand fans at every home game um, against quite small teams. Rangers went through a terrible time financially ten years ago, and then came back in the fourth tier in Scotland and still had forty thousand fans turning up to games against teams of semi-professionals who are you know like part-time footballers who are also like firefighters or teachers or um, and generally play in front of 500 fans and Rangers had 40, 50,000 fans turning up for games against really quite small teams in the lower leagues. And I, I think these are these are two of the biggest clubs in the world, I think. And um, yeah, and it's so it's it's a bit of a strange balance for them being in um, a league in a small country. All right. Well, let's go on. Let's let's double click on that sort of strange idea, because mm. uh, the the definition of professional soccer in the United States in the 1960s uh, was the epitome of the word strange. Uh, and as as uh, listeners to this show have known, we've gone very deep on all kinds of stuff, uh, especially in the, uh, I guess, the, the road to the sort of second uh, level of professionalism in the United States that happened around the 1960s. 1966, the World Cup, that was the first time that that major event was broadcast at least the final was live in the united states and um but it's interesting two of your um uh, stories in this book uh talk about sort of the um 
the the role of some Scottish football in both the pre, the uh, uh, the pre, the precedent uh, to uh, that event in '66, as well as what followed on. So let me talk about s- sort of first that first part, right? So um, it's really interesting to note that um, in the history of the United States uh, uh, game of soccer, right? The uh, uh, the arrival of immigrants from various foreign lands certainly. Uh, helped stoke um, uh, a longstanding love of the game, albeit very regionally and uh, and kind of focused on a lot of those sort of ethnic enclaves, right? But it, by the 1960s, um, you had sort of this budding understanding and a second generation or two of people who have been here after relocating um, to the point where there were a number of entrepreneurs here that were thinking that, hey, this professional soccer thing may indeed finally be ready for us in the United States um, and enters or in comes this uh, curious thing, but maybe not too curious by comparison, um, a competition uh, called the International Soccer League. And uh, like the name implies, right, this is a uh, essentially an, a, a setup of summer games with an exhibition slate yet for a cup, right? Sort of a competition kind of thing. Played in some major uh, stadiums here in the United States. Um, Ostensibly for ethnic fans uh, from various regions, but perhaps also as a table setter or a uh, um, a palate uh, wetter, shall we say, for uh, Americans, quote unquote, uh, to maybe maybe kind of uh, become more involved and or understand this game. But it's very interesting if you look at the history um, the the teams that were imported for these five or so seasons of this uh, of this international soccer league, Scotland was a a major provider of teams for this league, and and you have one sp- particular uh, chapter uh, devoted to one of those teams that almost won this cup. Do you want to sort of explain uh, this this interesting story of of nineteen of the early nineteen sixties? Yeah, that's yeah. Um, you, you've summed it up the sort of the genesis of this really well there um yeah it was a an entrepreneur called bill cox who invited 12 clubs from around the world and um yeah like like you were alluding to they they were from a a wide spread of different nations and one of them was kilmarnock from scotland and not the biggest club in scotland by a fair distance i mean they're probably one of the 10 biggest clubs in scotland but they're um yeah uh, not in the top sort of five, you know, they would be a fair bit smaller than the five biggest clubs in Scotland. And um, but they were fairly successful at the time. They were they developed a bittersweet habit of finishing second in about just about every single competition they played in for about five years. Um, and they were invited to play in the first ever international soccer league. Um, and. It kicked off in um, in 1960, um, and they played in the opening game against Bayern Munich, who are one of the biggest clubs in the world now, um, from Munich in Germany, but they um, weren't as good then. Um, so, yeah, um, it kicked off then. Um, Kilmarnock won that opening game against Bayern Munich, and they, yeah, like you say, they, they almost won that tournament. They, there was quite a lot that happened, and they played in a big, long group stage for a month and then went home for a month. Well, the second group played their games and then came back after that to play the winners of the other group, who were Bangu from Brazil, who are about as famous in Scotland now as Kilmarnock probably are in Brazil. 
And um, uh, but unfortunately, for, from Kilmarnock's point of view, um, Bangu beat them in the final. Although um, Kilmarnock did get a few trophies, um, a few nice big trophies throughout the tournament for various things. Um, one of their opponents, Nice, although they had quite a angry game with a fair bit of fighting, um, gave Kilmarnock a trophy for being the most supporting opponents they faced. And I think the Kilmarnock goalkeeper was given a trophy for being the player of the tournament. But yeah, um, yeah, it was. Uh, they yeah. So one of the not one of the biggest clubs in Scotland almost almost won the um, first ever. Uh, installment of the International Soccer League in the States. Yeah, so so explain that. So you mentioned that they came and they played in their um, in their division, which include not only uh, Bayern Munich but also uh, Glenavon of uh, of northern of then Northern Ireland. Uh, this team uh, uh, called the New York Americans, which ostensibly was a um, an American quote unquote All Star team. You mentioned uh, Nice and Burnley from the uh, what is now known as the English Premier League, but obviously the first division. Um, then, but but you're describing sort of this format, which sounds kind of odd, right? In that it sounds to me like this group was created and they played, and then they kind of took a pause, and then the second group played, and then afterwards the top two of those would play each other. So, do I have this right? Kilmarnock left. They came to the United States. They played in the New York area in this in their their round robin, and then they came back to play this final. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That was uh, something that surprised me when I started delving into the story a bit deeper um, to do my research for the book. And um, yeah, because uh, these days you just assume that um, the round robin group stages happen at the, alongside each other at the same time. Um, but no, that's not that's not what happened. Then they uh, they had a month's worth of matches, um, flew back across the Atlantic, which wasn't wasn't as quick and easy then as it is now. Um, stayed in, were in, back in Scotland for another month and I think the new season must have kicked off in Scotland by the time that they um, flew back to um, back to New York for the final um, and yeah that's right there was a big long big long gap in the middle of it yeah I mean you describe it as a month and a half and uh, it's also interesting to know too that this International Soccer League which continued for four seasons afterwards also was largely paid in the New York metropolitan area it did expand as the years went on but the polo grounds uh, was where this final was, and and the, the Polo Grounds for those who those who remember, right? The New York Giants uh, baseball club and uh, were were had had left after a couple of uh, after some uh, amazing seasons. They had left at the uh, tail end of the fifties, uh, and it was kind of just sort of sitting there. And this was this is actually two years before a new expansion baseball club came in. Um, I, I, I guess the best way to describe the Polo Grounds was it was kind of on its last legs. It was sort of kind of, it wasn't sort of the highest level uh, probably playing surface and stadium yet. You had 25,000 fans playing, uh, watching this game against Bangu of, of Brazil actually won the game, but I, I got to think, and, and now it makes some sense, right? That the Scottish uh, league had probably gotten underway and here they are having to fly back after a month and a half of games prior and it's in the middle of August, right? Which is hot and humid and probably the antithesis of what the beginning games of the Scottish league might look like back home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I got to be honest, I've never heard of the polo grounds before I started researching this story because yeah, like you say, it was, um, they were coming towards the end of their 
um, life, weren't they? And um, yeah, just just across 110th Street, I think, just above above Central Park. But yeah, it was it must have been um, a strange experience flying to yeah what would have been would have been a lot hotter in New York than it would have been in Kilmarnock at that time in August. Um, so yeah, um, it must have been a strange experience. But that's yeah, there was a, especially in the 60s, there was a lot of um, new experiences for Scottish clubs. Um, and sort of as football became more global, did they they did they receive a trophy uh, for winning that um, that uh, first uh, that uh, their their division their sort of round robin tournament? Do you know? And and if so, do you have any idea? Perhaps maybe where that trophy might live, or or do they have it, or is it maybe lost forever, or, or maybe maybe it's just an unknown. I, I I think they received two trophies, and I don't think either of them were for coming. Um, for winning the group, I think there was one for the goalkeeper. I think for um, being the player of the tournament, and one that Nice gave them for the for uh, awarded to them for the match that they played against them. Um, and I imagine that they'll be. I, I don't know, but I imagine they'll be in the um, the, the trophy room in at Kilmarnock's ground. Um, they've got. They have done. They have achieved some other things after their um, long period of coming second in just about every tournament. They did win the league. In 1965, um, and that was towards the end of a period where lots of clubs, other than Celtic and Rangers, managed to win the odd league in the sort of 20 years after the Second World War. Um, so, yeah, I think Kilmarnock have will have a, a trophy room that will include those trophies. I'm sure. All right, we'll have to put that out to our audience to, to somehow. Yeah. And we've got audience all over the all over the world, believe it or not. So we'll we'll see. Anybody can snap a picture of those and send that to us. Yeah, uh, we'd appreciate it. So let me ask you also this too: uh, from what you know, circa 1960 or so, and and the early 1960s generally with Scottish football, wh- why do you think the um, Kilmarnock was um, uh, invited? Actually, I think they played four out of the five seasons of this tournament. Uh, because I also note that um, there were a couple of seasons. 62 Dundee came over uh and uh, and Hearts came over in 1964 as well. Um yeah. I'm just curious as to why maybe Kilmarnock uh was uh invited so regularly and uh maybe why even Scottish football uh teams were uh, sought after uh for this tournament based on what you might know. Um so one part of that I probably can't answer, and one part, part that I actually don't have an answer to. I don't know why specifically Kilmarnock, Dundee, and Hearts were invited, other than the fact, you know, as opposed to Celtic or Rangers. Actually, Celtic weren't doing very well at that time. Um, but as opposed to Rangers, and I don't know if it's because Rangers simply weren't available um, and didn't want to take part in um, in other tournaments other than the ones they were in, automatically in anyway. Um, but it was a time when Kilmarnock, Dundee, and Hearts were all were all pretty successful by their um, standards, and I think Scottish football, Scottish clubs were um, were good at that time um, on globally. Um, it was before German clubs had started becoming particularly good. We were at a similar level to English clubs, I would say, um, and I think I think it simply reflects the fact that. It's Scottish clubs were relatively strong at the time, and I think, um, and I also think that there was also 
at most of the games involving Scottish clubs in these tournaments that we're talking about in the 60s, I think there was a lot of um, ethnic Scots at the grounds as part of the crowd. It's a recurring theme for various tours of um, Scottish clubs to the States and Canada um, for decades, either sort of before this as well, um, that there was always a lot of Scots who'd moved to America or Canada in the crowds at these games. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point, especially in the northern uh, in the New York City metropolitan area. Yeah. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with a an enclave there, a town very rich in American soccer history, largely on the backs. This this, this is in New Jersey, right? It's, yes, um, in Kearney, right? Indeed, and and a lot of actually nineteen uh, nineties uh, era uh, World Cup players and and some of our greatest uh, U.S. Soccer Hall of Famers emanated literally out of that area, that hamlet, those teams there. Carney Thistle and all that kind of stuff. And there was a very much of a uh, an enclave there that still is very strong to this day. So I have to think that half the town of Carney came to these games in the in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I find that fascinating, just the the fact that yeah, that such a concentrated area, yeah, it's, it provided quite a lot of players to the national team. Am I right? Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's also interesting too that um there was every season the uh actually there were six seasons of this international soccer league 1960 being the first one 1965 the the last one um there was always at least one uh Scottish club uh in the uh in the play of of these games. So uh, it's clear that there was a a pipeline of of sorts um and and my guess is that the style was relatively entertaining um, and and it's interesting too, also that the, the these these teams, these clubs that played in this this competition were uh, some of them are names that we know now. And the, uh, quite a few of them were kind of, I would say, maybe mid tier or mid table for their respective countries. But um, no no doubt that it was competitive and certainly a great uh, set of exposure for the curious American fan, I guess. All right, let me talk to you about DraftKings Sportsbook. Hey, you know, there's so much to be thankful for this holiday season. Family, friends, food, and of course, NFL football all week long. DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping your Thanksgiving week full of action. New customers can bet just 5 bucks on the NFL action to score 150 instantly in bonus bets. Hey, no matter the appetite, there's something for you. Money lines, parlays, props, live bets, and so much more. You name it, they've got it. Uh, and look, there are a whole bunch of different uh, NFL games, including maybe it's that uh, Dolphins-Jets game on Prime Video, that Friday afternoon, Black Friday game uh, in the afternoon at the uh, at the Meadowlands. And maybe the Jets will actually surprise and come out from uh, the darkness and, and defeat Miami after their uh, hot start. Who knows what the, the line is is going to be on that by the time you hear this, but one of just many, many games that you can play on DraftKings Sportsbook. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the code GOODSEATS, and all new customers can bet five on the NFL Thanksgiving action to score 150 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sporting sports, he says, betting partner of the NFL, and using that code GOODSEATS. Again, that's DraftKings Sportsbook. The crown is yours. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling by calling 888-789-7777 or visiting ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas. Must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms. <sighs> and now, back to our conversation. So the, the, the sort of white-hot event in the 60s when it comes to soccer in the United States was... Uh, the World Cup played in England, and obviously we know that that England won uh, their their one and only World Cup uh, then. And and um, you know the, the the lore and the legacy continues until someday maybe they'll win again. Um, right. But uh, in the United States, that was a uh, a clarion call, a siren, if you will, for uh, entrepreneurs, especially of the sports ownership variety, especially baseball owners. It seemed here in the United States that. Hey, maybe it's time to finally, you know, convert um, this sort of international competition thing into a domestic league for a number of different reasons. Prime among them being dollar signs, money. Let's make some. And the um, as listeners of this show know, and you probably also might uh, know too, um, there were no sh- no uh, no fewer than three groups of people. Uh, ultimately then became two and then competitive at that, that uh, had their their sights on uh, building and starting a professional league. And, and I'm not going to get into the murkiness of it, but there were really two efforts, one that was FIFA endorsed, um, this thing called the United Soccer Association, which we'll get to in a second, and this sort of rogue thing called the National Professional Soccer League, which had the added benefit of a national television contract. Um we we go from let's put it this way zero professional leagues in the United States in 1966 to potentially three and ultimately two competing with each other in 1967. Geez, what could go wrong? Um, but uh, the United Soccer Association, because of a number of different issues and f- having their hand forced by this thing called the NPSL, um, I think the original idea for these two leagues was to kind of start in 1968, but the NPSL got the, uh, the wherewithal and I guess some of the commitments to start in 67. So not to be outdone, this United soccer association uh, reacted and said, okay, well, well, I'll let you explain that there was a curious approach to the USA uh, in 1967. It wasn't the original plan. Now was it? I don't think so. No. And I don't think I'm over oversimplifying it, but I think basically, like you say, they they needed to start playing sooner than they planned, but they didn't have any teams. So um, yeah, what, so, what could go? Yeah, well, no problem there. Yeah. So they imported teams from Europe and and um, existing teams and um, gave them new names. Um, so the, including three Scottish clubs, 
uh, Aberdeen became the Washington Whips, based in DC. Um, Dundee United, um, from 60 miles down the road from Aberdeen, they flared to Dallas to become the Dallas Tornado. And Hips, another 60 miles south in Edinburgh, they flew to Toronto and became Toronto City. And they took part alongside English clubs, Italian clubs, um, clubs from different parts of Europe. Um, they um, again from Ireland as well, um, and they um, and they uh, and clubs I think from uh, from South America as well, like um, yeah, Cerro from Uruguay, uh, for example. They um, yeah they competed in this uh, another long tournament this time without a without a month back at home in in the middle. Um, they played in groups of twelve matches. Um, there was two groups. Teams played twelve matches each, and then um, and then um, there was a final. In, and again, one of the Scottish clubs was the runner-up in the final, and it was an inc- incredibly entertaining final um, with ten goals, I think. And um, played in the LA Coliseum, um, and yeah, it was a it was it was a. It, Quite unusual tournament, um, yeah. Not least of, not least of all, because these European and South American teams um, were were each given a new identity um, to represent different cities in the states for the duration of the tournament. Yeah, it's interesting. They were all uh, obviously uh, lured by some some decent dollars to to come over and do this, but this is largely uh for the european clubs in their off season correct yes um yeah it was in the off season yeah um, um uh, but i guess it was um it was filling up pretty much all of the off season um so they didn't basically didn't have a break <laughs> for what would have been best part of two years i guess in the end um with the seasons either side and then this tournament why do you think uh, uh, not only Aberdeen, but why would why that the, the allure of having three Scottish clubs? I mean, I it it um, they they were over indexing, if you will, for for this uh, for this experiment. Um, I got to think that there was some um, I don't know some goodwill that had been built up in the ISL days uh, with all those uh, all those clubs having played in that prior. I think that was would have been part of it, yeah. But um, by this point, nineteen sixty seven. Um, Scottish football, club football in particular, was really on a high. Um, uh, this first um, seven months of 1967, Scottish clubs are incredibly successful. Um, Celtic have just won the European Cup at this point, um, beating Inter in the final and Lisbon um, Inter from Italy, um, who were the who had won it several times themselves previously. The, the European Cup, Celtic won that. Um, with an incredible d- display of attacking football in one of the best performances in the European Cup final ever. Um, and um, Rangers and Kilmarnock, again, had both been six- extremely successful in Europe that season. Rangers had got to a final. Kilmarnock had got to a semi-final of other European trophies. Um, and although Scotland had narrowly failed to qualify for the 1966 World Cup, um having been in a very tough group, qualifying group with Italy uh, and narrowly missing out, 
the Scotland team at that point was one of the best collections of players we've ever had in the international team. And also, in I think it was April 1967, we'd um, completely outplayed England, the world champions, at Wembley and, and comprehensively beaten them 3-2 um, with a brilliant performance. Um, and that was the first time England had lost since the World Cup as champions. And so I think it would have been a pretty straightforward decision, I think, to invite the two, three, and it was ended up being three Scottish clubs to take part in the tournament. But it also felt to me like this was no summer adventure. I mean, it seemed like, well, I, I guess it maybe did, but it didn't, right? I mean, I, by all accounts, it seems like this was a pretty first-class kind of environment for these clubs. I mean, to come over and play all these games and then they were put up in hotels and stuff. And uh, there's a lot of pomp and pageantry. I know there were uh, the various uh, press sort of junkets and all that kind of stuff, but the quality of, well, the quality of play, it feels to me like the competition was pretty fierce, especially when Scottish clubs under their norms diploma uh, played each other uh, because that was, you know, there's a familiarity there, even though they have got two different names uh, affixed to their jerseys for those. Yeah, I think um, the the clubs. I, I, it was interesting writing about it, um, thinking to what extent were these basically Aberdeen, Dundee United, Hibs, and then English clubs like Stoke and Wolves, um, and to what extent were they their um, new identities uh, under their new names in America? And I think basically they were their native teams under a different name briefly. Um, and yeah, that existing rivalry would have been there. Um, yeah, there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of fierce rivalry throughout the whole tournament. There was a few pitch pitch invasions. Um, uh, Three thousand fans invaded the pitch when Cagliari played Hibs. Um, Cagliari from Sardinia in Italy, um, and there was another pitch invasion at Cagliari's game against Cerro from Uruguay. Um, there was yeah quite a lot of uh, <laughs> quite a lot of stuff like that and um, and yeah like you say there was a lot of pageantry as well and I think the Scottish footballers were were very excited by the standard of accommodation that they were put up in in the states they were um, I mean one Aberdeen player had a column in a newspaper in Aberdeen and he was reporting back about having TVs and radios in their hotel rooms and how exciting that was and um, kind of, I guess, reflects what life was like in Scotland in the 60s. <laughs> the, the level of excitement at what we would now think is so basic. But, um, yeah, uh, and there was a lot of um, getting invited to Andy Williams concerts and going and meeting the Washington Redskins um, NFL team. Um, interesting, it, thing that happened when Aberdeen went and met the Washington uh, NFL team. They, um, Aberdeen had a big Danish defender called Jens Peterson and um, and they got him to try kicking field goals. And he um, was very successful and they tried to sign him um, to play in the NFL. Uh, but the Aberdeen, the Aberdeen manager was having none of that. He was quickly put a stop to that. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of um, pomp, pageantry, and also some uh, some uh, sort of less um, uh, less well-behaved events during the matches. 
Yeah, it's it seems like it was uh, kind of hit or miss in terms of the quality of play. Certainly the pitches, uh, the refereeing, I, I know, was uh, uh, questioned, uh, to put yeah. it mildly. Um, I guess I'm curious as to from what you were able to discern. Um, you're mentioning that uh, uh, Tommy McMillan, McMillan had had a, a column uh, back home, but how much reporting was there on this? I mean, I, I'm just curious as to to what the the home fans maybe were really understanding about this, aside from that column about how these teams are playing in this tournament. This is obviously largely before you know uh, the, the television being so as uh, widely available as it is now, but I just had to be a curious uh, summer being a, a fan back home of these teams and and these games and and kind of understanding what the heck it was and taking on these uh, uh, you know essentially uh, folding their 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 brand their names into these uh, these foreign cities, shall we say? Yeah, uh, I think the, the fans really got most of their news from the newspapers then. Um, I don't think the TV or radio probably reported on it very much, although obviously I can't be sure of that. But um, I think they would have got their news from the papers. And I think the newspapers probably saw it as a, as a novelty, the tournament, but quite a large and interesting novelty. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it was, you know... Um, Anything that's separate from the big established tournaments like the Scottish League, the Scottish Cup, and then the established European competitions would have been like a sort of side dish. Um, uh, but I think there was a fair amount of reporting, was based on what I saw in my research, um, that um, I think we found it pretty a pretty interesting novelty. Yeah. Well, I will tell you the there are uh, some clips, not, not the full match though, of of this final. You know, fans, the history of sports is full of dramatic moments. Baseball's World Series, the football bowl game, they've produced a host of memorable performances. So have the professional basketball and hockey playoffs. Now professional soccer still is such a new venture in North America that its moments of glory are limited. However, few sports events much sustained and exciting action as the United Soccer Association's first championship. The 18,000 fans who saw it in person and the thousands who listened to it on radio or watched the telecast will remember it as one of their supreme thrills. Now, for those who may not be familiar with the background of this spectacular match, recognized professional soccer in 1967. For the first season only, the league imported 12 complete teams from Europe and South America, one team for each league city. The Washington Whips, who were represented by Aberdeen of Scotland, emerged as winners in the Eastern Division. The Los Angeles Wolves, who actually were the Wolverhampton Wolves of England, captured the Western Division title. And the Whips and the Wolves met in a championship playoff game at Los Angeles' Memorial Coliseum to climax the United Soccer Association's inaugural season. Now, in soccer, as in American football, there normally is no overtime. If the game ends in a tie, that's it. However, because this match was for the championship, Commissioner Dick Walsh ruled the two teams would play until someone won. And as a result, both teams fought their hearts out. Now, the match they played has been rated by many observers as the greatest soccer game ever seen anywhere. So Jack Kent Cook, right, who wound up becoming the owner of the Redskins uh, over time, the um, uh, and I believe was uh, involved in the Washington Whips franchise, or maybe it was L.A. at the time. I'm, I'm not sure, but but he he's uh, he was largely... Sort of, he was like the master of ceremonies, and at the end of the game, uh, and we'll, we'll pull up a clip for that for in the in the lead up to this show. 
Um, there's uh, he, he's just he's just literally regaling uh, the audience, the crowd there that uh, a match arguably was probably one of the best played on American soil at that time. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to make a presentation to the owner of the Los Angeles Wolves and the man who has sponsored the Wolverhampton Wolves this year, Mr. Jack Kent Cook. And when we decided to start soccer here in America, I was warned constantly that this is a dull game. Isn't it one of the most exciting games you've ever seen in your life? There isn't a writer in Hollywood, there never has been one, who could have written a script for the game tonight. Next year, the year after, and all the years to come, we're going to be proudly privileged to bring you wonderful fans, Major League Soccer here in Los Angeles, and thank you so much. You know, it's overtime and sudden death and a 6-5 game. I mean, tr- tremendously entertaining. And it's just very interesting to to sort of note that coming off of that uh, that experience and those high-quality players right that's the antithesis of the challenger league the national professional soccer league which was rogue not fifa approved and um literally was an assemblage of players that you know were had not played with each other right so it, it looked pretty good at that time for the united soccer association given that kind of excitement that kind of crowd and that kind of play uh as sort of a uh i guess a high if you will going into uh, into to to play into 1968, giving them a very strong sort of um, kind of momentum. But alas, that wasn't going to be the model in the in the next year. It was going to revert back to uh, team based play with with uh, drafted players and all of that. But I just I guess I wonder how a team like Aberdeen, or frankly any of the other uh, clubs, um, you know, uh, sort of felt uh, coming out of that. I guess it was sort of an experience. I also wonder, too, where those games sort of live in terms of the stats of those franchises, right? Like how much or how little do these clubs uh, refer to their uh, your, their American adventure in 1967? Is it, from, from what you can tell, is it part of their history? Uh, do they, you know, do they remember it? Do they care about it? Do they, is it hard to find? I'm just really curious as to what they sort of took from from that American adventure in 67. I think the view is very unofficial. I think um, it is, it's, it's a challenging story to research. Um, um, there's not really, for one, for example, there's not information that, that I, there's not information on Aberdeen, Dundee United or Hibs websites about these tournaments. Um, I think, again, they saw them as a novelty. Um, you alluded to this earlier as well, but they got two hundred and fifty thousand dollars each for turning up. So I guess that was the main motivation, rather than any glory. But um, and it's one interesting point. It's quite um, it features fairly largely in the Aberdeen manager's autobiography, 
um, Eddie Turnbull, and he, he was a guy who had plenty of material through his career to talk about. He was a no-nonsense fella who was in the Navy in the in the Arctic in the Second World War. So he was a he was a tough guy, and um, and um, he uh, had a lot of interesting experiences in his career. And um, but this is still one that makes it fairly well into his autobiography alongside the rest of them. Um, I. Coming back to what you're saying as well, I think it's interesting, yeah, because I guess the United Soccer Association were forced into, it wasn't their first choice to import international teams, but choosing pre-existing teams did work very well for them. The players obviously knew each other. They were good sides. Aberdeen played against Wolverhampton Wanderers in the final. They were both really good sides at the time. And yeah, you're right. The final ended up 6-5 with a sudden death goal. Um and it was, yeah, those highlights <laughs> exist of the final. It was, it was an incredible match. So I think the U- United Soccer Association got really lucky there. With, I mean, it obviously helped having those good established sides. But it was still, you often think a final in tournament might not. It could be quite cagey. The players take it easy, but it, yeah, the scoreline players getting sent, players got sent off. There was um, a couple of hat tricks and penalties, I think, um, and. It was an incredibly dramatic match, and then um, with a lot of again pomp and ceremony around it, there was a the Wolves players ended up getting given presented with a table full of trophies, individual to individual players, um, and yeah, it was in the LA Coliseum, a uh, great venue for it, and um, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose it's perhaps a surprise that um, that success didn't carry on into the following seasons. Now, as you can see, we have individual trophies to present to the winning Wolves. And for just a moment, I'd like to bring on the manager of the ball club, the manager of the year, Ronnie Allen. Thank you, Dick. Um, I think everybody in the stadium has seen uh, one of the most fantastic games of football ever being played. And I think that uh, these fellas are as much responsible as these fellas. So I'd like to ask for three cheers for this lot. Okay? They played hard, they played tough, but by golly, with ten men, they frightened us all to death. And I, w- I wish on behalf of Wolves and everybody here, I'm sure, a, sh- a safe journey home for them and continued success next year. Thank you very much, Aberdeen. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to remember that uh, this United Soccer Association uh, approach, right, was uh, uh, full of um, uh, major sports owners at the time, mostly uh, baseball. But uh, I mean, the New York Skyliners, which was uh, Cerro of, uh, of of Uruguay, that was they were owned by Madison Square Garden Corporation, which is the uh, the owner, I believe, of the Yankees at the time. Uh, Earl Foreman was uh, the owner of the Whips, which was the Aberdeen. Uh, franchise and Earl Foreman in the United States went on to uh, lots of other sports entrepreneurial endeavors, including launching something called the Major Indoor Soccer League in the 80s. Um, so he was very um, comfortable and a big backer of this stuff. But uh, and we mentioned Jack Kent Cook, who was the owner of the LA Wolves, i.e., um, or uh, Wolverhampton uh, Wanderers, right? Um, but he you know, he owned the Lakers and the Kings in the, in, in Los Angeles. But it's also uh, important to remember that Lamar Hunt, a big name in in American soccer lore, 
he was the guy behind the Dallas Tornado and then the Dundee franchise. Uh, and Lamar Hunt uh, went on to uh, found and, and sort of stick through even the, the lean years uh, all the way through the North American Soccer League and then into the founding of Major League Soccer. So, you know, this one season of um, uh, interesting uh, oddity, I guess, uh, in 1967, had a whole lot of roots that um, some of which kind of stuck around and ultimately birthed what for at least a number of years in the uh, 1970s and early 1980s was uh, a phenomenon in the North American Soccer League, obviously to go dark in the mid 80s and and until the early 1990s when the World Cup and then an, an, a new league got formed in 96 here. But um, we love to kind of dig into those things because those seeds Right. We talked about it with Kearney, New Jersey, and the players there uh, and the teams that came over. Right. You know, it's um, these are all part of the uh, the fabric of what is now, you know, I would argue certainly not nearly as historically rich as what is in uh, in Scotland when it comes to the game. But the United States has a very rich history and, you know, in many respects has a pretty strong trajectory now. And, and in these interesting and challenging times back in the 60s, uh, who knew what would come from all of these things? Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think, um, as you look back in all this, and obviously these are just two of the 99 stories that you've got sort of a, of Scottish football. There's, there's plenty of domestic uh, intrigue and, and international exploits and stuff. What do you, where do you sort of see the Scottish game going in the years ahead? Uh, do you think it's inevitable that um, at least Celtic and Rangers get sort of scooped up into something more continental and, and European? Do you, do you see the Scottish League uh, uh, living on even with or without them? Um, and frankly, where do you sort of see uh, the Scottish national team on the world stage? And does it take maybe a breakthrough either in the European championships or, or even the World Cup qualifying or or making the World Cup finals maybe to perhaps, um, I don't know, elevate the Scottish League maybe into something more uh, a higher order maybe than um, than it currently sits at. Yeah, um, I don't think it's inevitable that Celtic and Rangers will leave um, the Scottish League, at least not for a very long time, probably. Um, I wonder whether there might be a graduated increase in the amount of matches that are for uh, tournaments like Europe, the European um like the uh, Champions League in Europe or and other tournaments below that level, um, international tournaments and potentially invitational tournaments like, I guess, um, the Super League. That um, when that comes back round, maybe that will happen. And but that's that's not just a question. That's obviously not just a question that affects Scotland. It would affect. It would be that's a bigger existential question for club football. Um, in general, and um, but I think that would be very relevant to Celtic and Rangers, and therefore would the number of matches that you play in the domestic leagues, for example, shrink to accommodate that? There'd be a lot of resistance to that. Um, so I think it's going to be a gradual thing, that shifting of power. I think Scottish club football, it has a challenge to... Um, we... We haven't been able to maintain our our, um, our success on a European stage. Um, we've continued to punch above our weight. Um, at the moment, we're not 
probably punching above our weight, or probably, probably, probably punching at our weight, and it's going to be a continued challenge to um, to continue to overachieve again there. I don't really see um, anything coming on the horizon that's going to help with that. Um, in terms of the international team's fortunes, it very much depends on the players that we have to our, at our disposal at any one time and who's managing the international team. And we're in a good place with both of those at the moment. I think to look at things optimistically, um, I think we're starting to bring, starting again to bring through more good young players, a lot of whom aren't just staying in Scotland now, a lot of whom are playing in England and also um, we've got several players, young Scottish players playing in Italy at the moment, which is great um, and getting some great experience. So that's really good for the international team. We used to produce a lot of the best players in the world. Um, well, certainly well over our fair share for our population, um, like going back to the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, that's dropped off a bit. We've we got a bit complacent. We got overtaken by um, by other nations of similar size, or maybe slightly bigger nations from, for example, from Eastern Europe. Um, and and now I think we are getting the basics right again in terms of player development, or starting to at least. And I think that's a really good sign, and that's the biggest positive for the um, for the international team because you know football is a simple game, isn't it? And it comes back to um, having good players and that's something that Scotland used to be really good at and I think we're getting better at it again after a, after a bit of a, a slightly rough 20, 25 years during which also by no coincidence we haven't we've, we didn't qualify for any major international tournaments between the 1998 World Cup and Euro, Euro 2020 so um and now we've qualified for two European Championships, which is great. And and we are optimistic about qualifying for the World Cup in the States, Canada and Mexico. And we are desperate. <laughs> the Scotland fans were absolutely desperate to come and celebrate that because we know that's going to be a phenomenal event. Well, FIFA, FIFA's, FIFA's done its job. It's 48 teams yeah. now. So if you can't yeah. qualify now, I don't know, I don't know what, when your best chance is going to be. I know. We've got no one else to blame if we can't get through with a 48-team World Cup. Isn't it? That's another another reason for optimism for Scottish football. Is it's easier to qualify for the World Cup now than it used to be. It's remarkable to think that Scotland used to qualify when it was uh, 16 teams, like in 1978, for example, in 1974. Um, and... Yeah, 1974, the only team in the 1974 World Cup that didn't lose any games was Scotland. Um, we beat Zaire, we drew with Brazil, we drew with Uruguay, but because Brazil and Uruguay drew with each other as... No, sorry, not Uruguay, Yugoslavia. But because Brazil and Yugoslavia drew with each other as well and both beat Zaire, we went out on goal difference. Um, whereas even the winners of the World Cup, West Germany, they lost in a group stage match. So, yeah. 1974, Scotland were the only team that didn't lose any matches at the World Cup. Time to right the wrong in this coming tournament. <laughs> we wish yeah. you, we wish you the best of luck. And you know, it would be great to see uh, Celtic Rangers, frankly, any of these Scottish teams come back to the United States to play what is now a very healthy and robust uh, off-season summer season here in the United States. So there's plenty of uh, exhibition games to be played with Major League Soccer and United Soccer. 
uh, league teams here that we've got uh, a lot of soccer specific stadiums and stuff. And um, I don't know when the next uh, opportunity is, but I, w- I would hope it would be great, frankly, to see some of these Scottish sides um, uh, mix it up during the, at least in the summertime, at least for uh, their preseason efforts and uh, give uh, give our boys here a bit of a, a test or two. And you can be sure there'd be lots of Scots American fans in the crowds as well, especially in sort of New York area, Chicago area, Boston. All right, many thanks to Mark. Uh, the book, again, these are just two of the 99 iconic moments in Scottish football. That's the title. From the famous to the obscure, Scotland's glorious, unusual, and cult games, players, and events. It is published by our friends across the pond at Pitch Publishing. Thank you kindly uh, for uh, helping us get uh, Mark and uh, the book uh, into the ears and the consideration of our listeners. You can uh, find a convenient link or two uh, at our website to this book for, uh, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search up this episode. I think it's number 327, my goodness. And uh, you will find a convenient link to Amazon where you get it uh, as quickly, I believe, as humanly possible. Uh, it's against a hardcover, at least to start, and maybe some other editions and stuff to come. Uh, and um, we're, uh, you're, while you're there, um, why don't you stick around and kind of tool around and look around some of the other episodes that we've done over the uh, almost eight years now. All kinds of teams and leagues and situations and stuff. There's probably something there. You're probably not like everything, but there's probably a few things that you might find interesting. And uh, we strive to create more and more of that interestingness as we continue to build our little village here. Again, good seats still available dot com. Your locus for everything about this show. Hopefully in 2024, we're going to get our act together and uh, get a little bit more uh, commercially oriented and, and um, uh, offer some more stuff in terms of newsletters and uh, and savings of various uh, places for shirts and all that kind of stuff uh, beyond what we've done to date. Uh, but uh, make sure that you uh, bookmark that site, visit early and often. And again, you can share the episodes, you can uh, stream them right there. But of course, the best way is to subscribe or follow us in any of your favorite podcast players slash feeders. We're available wherever you can get podcasts, so just uh, do that. That's the easiest way to make sure that you don't miss out on anything that we put out there on a weekly basis. And tell your friends, why don't you? And if you can rate or review the show, preferably five stars, wink, wink, nod, nod, we'd appreciate that too. That helps the various algorithms out there uh, get to various people uh, who might similarly enjoy, hopefully, uh, this show as well. Uh, You can send us email, of course. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, we are in various socials, um, not necessarily uh, with uh, full heart and verve, depending on who owns the social network uh, that week and the various uh, uh, things that said owners might be uh, doing or saying and stuff. But uh, for the time being, you'll find us on X slash Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, we are on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on threads at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, and you will also find us, I don't know, just keep searching your various social feeds and we're experimenting where, wherever decent, you know, conversations can be had, uh, a tricky thing these days for sure, but, uh, wherever you can find us and want to please, by all means do so. Uh, our thanks of course, as always this week to our, our longtime pal, Jerry Payne of Payne, Jerry Payne, audio excellence 
Uh, we could not do this show uh, without him. Next week, more fun, frivolity, excitement coming your way. Hope the holidays are, or the season at least, is uh, starting out well for you. And thank you for listening. As always, we'll see you. Until next week, take care of yourselves. Bye.